Well, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, You have brought us forth by the word of truth, the seed of regeneration, that ever-enduring word, which is the word of the gospel which was preached unto us. We pray that as newborn babes, we would desire the pure milk of the word, that you would teach and instruct us and give us that spirit of anointed discernment that we might once again discern between truth and error and that we might know the truth and that the truth would set us free. We pray that you would also help us as we study the federal vision uh, that we would have holy affections in loving the truth and yet being stirred up uh, with outrage against error, that we might oppose it and that we might not be susceptible to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our series on the federal vision, now moving to consider a new topic, regeneration redefined. Regeneration redefined. Most of our focus thus far has been centered around the doctrine of justification by faith alone and uh, interacting with Norman Shepard and Rich Lusk. Now we turn to consider the teachings of James Jordan, also known as Jim Jordan, but not the incoming House Judiciary Chairman. Uh, This is a different Jim Jordan not the the late father of the basketball star, Michael Jordan, James Jordan, uh, who who passed away in the mid-90s. This is a different James Jordan. This James Jordan is a well-known teacher and author within the Christian Reconstructionist and Federal Vision movements, respectively. And if if you know anything about James Jordan, you'll know that those who have a deep respect for him respect him for his expertise in the field of biblical interpretation. That is what he's known for, and he's a former student of Norman Shepard. He signed the 2007 Joint Federal Vision Statement. He's published numerous articles and resources through his Biblical Horizons newsletter, which you can find online. And uh, James Jordan has authored several books, including Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World. And in that book, he sets forth his perspective on, in many ways, on how to read the Bible, how to understand the Bible. That perspective has been criticized by fellow Reconstructionists like Greg Bonson, who accused Jordan of interpretive maximalism, reading into things and and, and allegorizing things in, in ways that that go far beyond the text of Scripture. But in any event, he's known for that book, Through New Eyes. Primeval Saints, Studies in the Patriarchs of Genesis, another book that he's written that uh, Canon Press, Doug Wilson, they, they sell that book, I'm pretty sure. And also Creation in Six Days, A Defense of the Traditional Reading of Genesis 1. I do have that book. That has some helpful resources in it. So he, he is... Uh, Fairly, he's been fairly active on the scene, writing and producing materials. In 2005, Jordan contributed an essay to the volume The Federal Vision, edited by Steve Wilkins and Dwayne Garner. So Jordan is a Federal Vision advocate. 
He's listed as Scholar-in-Residence Emeritus at the Theopolis Institute in Birmingham, Alabama, which is overseen by various CREC pastors, that's Doug Wilson's denomination, and federal visionists, including its president, Peter Lightheart, who also serves as an ordained teacher at Rich Lusk's nearby CREC congregation in Birmingham. Lightheart used to be the pastor of that church back in the day when it was PCA. Lusk succeeded him and took the church into the CREC, out of the PCA. We talked something about that. And so Lusk's congregation is there in Birmingham. Lightheart is now back in Birmingham heading up this Theopolis Institute. Jordan was uh, honored in 2011 with a feshrift entitled The Glory of Kings, a feshrift in honor of James B. Jordan. And that book was a a feshrift is a collection of essays in honor of somebody, and some of the contributors to that volume who wrote those essays would include federal visionists John Barrick, Peter Lightheart, Rich Lusk, Ralph A. Smith. We have yet to consider him. He's the one who, uh, he's the federal visionist that addresses the doctrine of the Trinity. So that, that one might be a jaw dropper as well. We haven't gotten to him yet. But also Doug Wilson and then John Frame who's not really a federal visionist. It's hard to know what he is. He's, he's sort of, uh, he's been nicknamed Sick et Non John. Yes and no, he's, he's all over the place, but he appears in this volume as well. In 2019, due to multiple recent strokes, Jordan discontinued Biblical Horizons and effectively retired from public ministry. And there's a statement to that effect on the front page of his Biblical Horizons website. At the present time, Jordan's 11-part Theopolis hermeneutics course, How to Read the Bible, is currently available on Doug Wilson's Canon Press app alongside literally dozens of lecture series on such topics as Old Testament studies, New Testament studies, and various theological topics, including Pado communion so on and so forth. So Wilson's organization is promoting James Jordan as an expert in biblical hermeneutics. This is the guy they're saying, um, you need to take his course, his 11-part course, How to Read the Bible. Now, in January of 2003, Jordan published an article entitled, Thoughts on Sovereign Grace and Regeneration, Some Tentative Explorations. In this article, Jordan seeks to defend federal vision assertions regarding baptismal regeneration. So that's the purpose of the article. He addresses, he's trying to help save the day in this debate where federal visionists are promoting various forms of baptismal regeneration. And Jordan, in seeking to address the doctrine of regeneration, is trying to bolster the defense of those federal visionist claims, okay? So he seeks to defend federal visionist assertions regarding baptismal regeneration by attacking, that's a word he uses actually in the article, by attacking the historic biblical and confessional definition of personal regeneration and positing a radical new definition. Now, federal visionists, past and present, even guys like Doug Wilson, who no longer explicitly associates with the movement, but uh, has never repudiated it as a false teaching, people that uh, are part of this whole milieu of federal vision will often say, well, Jordan's article here 
was just tentative. It really was not asserting anything for sure. It was just a thought experiment. Seems like we've heard that before in our presbytery when people write things. Oh, it was just a thought experiment. But if you look at the footnote, some of the statements in the paper about his personal beliefs, he says, this paper is an invitation to converse, not an attempt to settle every detail. Okay, fair enough. But then he says, I wish to make a case for this thesis. I am not saying that I regard this thesis as certain. Rather, at the present time, I believe this thesis to be correct, end quote. Well, that's how we would describe many of our beliefs, right? I I could be wrong, but this is what I believe right now. Well, this is what he believes at the present time to be correct. So it's not merely tentative. He's asserting it. He's defending it. He believes it. And so he posits this new radical redefinition of regeneration. Let's look at some of the quotes. Jordan, quote, I hope to dissolve some of the perceived problems with the new ideas at issue in Presbyterian circles at the present time. That's federal vision. He's trying to address that. For example, if those putting forth the new perspective, now he's not talking specifically about new perspective on Paul, but he's talking about federal vision injecting some of these new ideas into the Presbyterian context. He says, if those putting forth the new perspective are willing to speak of baptism as the washing of regeneration, this is only a problem if regeneration is defined in a certain way. So what's the critique we often use for baptismal regeneration as Calvinists? Well, we say if every single baby that's been baptized has been regenerated, then how do you explain that some fall away? You can't hold to the perseverance of the saints, the idea that everyone who's truly regenerated perseveres to the end. You can't hold to that doctrine if you believe that every single baptized baby is regenerate at baptism. And so at times, some of these people will will move away from baptismal regeneration and they'll start talking about presumptive regeneration. Well, we assume they're regenerate, but they may not be. And that allows them, even though that's a wrong view as well, but that allows them to preserve the idea that the ones who fell away and went to hell subsequent to baptism did not lose their salvation. So that is a common criticism against baptismal regeneration, whether it appears with Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism or Anglicanism in various forms. And and this is the point he's making. He's saying those who understand Titus, what is it, Titus 3, 5, the washing of regeneration, those who think that that's talking about baptism as regenerating, that's only a problem to assert that if we define regeneration in a certain way. So he's going to try to skirt the criticism that baptismal regeneration is unbiblical because it means that people are losing their salvation. He's going to address those types of issues here. By the way, washing of regeneration could just as easily be a genitive of apposition. In other words, it's, it's not necessarily saying the washing of baptism is a regeneration, but it could just as easily be saying that regeneration is a washing. And I think that's what it is saying. Because in the context, it talks about it's by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So regeneration washes us, but the washing of baptism doesn't regenerate us. And there's no really real way to conclusively prove this, this baptismal regeneration perspective on that phrase. 
But anyway, so that's where he's going here. He says again, quote, I want to take up the question of regeneration as it is commonly understood in Calvinistic circles since the time of the Synod of Dort, 1617. My thesis is that the Bible does not teach that some people receive incorruptible new hearts, that some people are as individuals regenerated, end quote. This should knock your socks off. Let me read that again. My thesis is that the Bible does not teach that some people receive incorruptible new hearts and that some people are as individuals regenerated. So he's denying personal individual regeneration. This is the guy that Doug Wilson says, if you want to know how to read the Bible and interpret the Bible, this is the guy. Sign up for the 11-part course. This is the scholar in residence emeritus at the Theopolis Institute. He's denying personal individual regeneration. Wow. Now, according to Jordan, since Paul sometimes addresses entire churches as elect and regenerate, these terms, elect and regenerate, must apply equally to all baptized persons. Not as those elect unto salvation and final perseverance. So when Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, you're chosen in Christ, you're elect, you're predestined. He's not saying that they're elect unto salvation and final perseverance. Not that, but as those chosen for church membership who may later fall away. This is what he calls the ecclesial or ecclesiastical interpretation that election in the New Testament is not saying you're elect to end up in heaven. You're elect to join the church and give it the old college try, so to speak. And praise God if you persevere, but you might not. By the way, before we look at these, you may recall in one of our lectures on Norman Shepard, we observed that in the midst of all of Shepard's errors, he actually had a really helpful paragraph describing the reason why the apostles sometimes address the New Testament churches as those who are elect and regenerate, and at other times, urge them to examine themselves as if many of them may not be. And if you recall what Shepherd said, and, and really it's not Shepherd, it's, it's just straightforward Reformed teaching, but what he said was, is that Paul is not saying that he personally knew that every single person in that assembly of that particular church was elected and regenerate, but based upon the faith and sanctity of those who had professed Christ and were living according to that credible profession of faith, because of the faith and sanctity of the Ephesians, for instance, by a judgment of charity, he addressed them that way because that's the fruit that had been seen and observed in their profession and in their life. And he was speaking to them in that regard. But at the same time, because he understood that the church is not 100% elect, that there's a mixed multitude of wheat and tares, At other times, he would address them with warnings. So sometimes he's addressed them as believers. Other times he balances that, addressing them as those who need to make their calling and election sure. And so there there are both charitable uh, assessments and there are also warnings. And that's just the way it works. And I think, again, Shepard had a helpful way of putting it. And that's, that's basically the Reformed teaching. But what Jordan is trying to say is that if Paul addresses the New Testament church at any point and seems to be suggesting they're all saved, therefore they all must be saved. And to be, or well, 
for him to be saved, to be regenerated, is just to be a church member. So let me read this quote. He gives a number of explanations of what Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 might be saying, and then he gives his, his thesis in the form of a question. He says, or is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1 that all these people, all of them were baptized into the church because God elected them for this privilege from the foundation of the world. And all of them were called and sanctified, etc., in Christ. That is, they have been elected into the church, into union with Christ, but now must make their calling and election sure by persevering, not wandering away and disuniting from Christ. He goes on, I am personally persuaded of the ecclesial interpretation of these passages, end quote. So in other words, Jordan is saying to be elect in Ephesians 1 is to be chosen by God from all eternity to be a church member who may or may not persevere. So let me read these verses in Ephesians 1, 3 and following to refresh your memory. Uh, This is a radical reinterpretation of the Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, Jordan's saying, well, yeah, at least at the present time, you're holy and without blame before him in love, but you might not be holy and blameless before him in love for all eternity, but at least you're elected to be a church member and sit in the pews and receive baptism. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, but... God could cast you into hell. Though you're his sons today, you might fall away and then he'll cast you into hell. You're elect unto church membership. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved, at least for now, according to Jordan. We'll see this later. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace at least for now, as church members. We're elect unto temporary church membership that could lead to eternal life if we persevere. Again, here's a quote from Jordan. Does the Bible teach that somehow hidden within the visible church, within the external covenant, there is a group of people who are truly regenerate and who because of this will not fall away? End quote. You'll notice, by the way, federal visionists, in, in many cases, have a tendency to push back against this distinction between the visible and invisible church, the idea that the church is a field of wheat and tares, that it's a mixed multitude. They, they tend to push against that. People like Doug Wilson, who hold to pedo communion, you know, wanting every baptized member, even little infants, one-and-a-half-year-old infants, to be taking communion, They really want to view the whole church as regenerate. You see this with Roman Catholicism. They view everybody as regenerated and justified in their baptism. You could lose it later if you get on the bad side of the Pope, but for now, everybody's regenerate. You see this with Reformed Baptist churches, although without a lot of the heretical stuff. I mean, but Reformed Baptist churches, they don't allow children to be members because they want to preserve some sense that all the members are elect and regenerate, at least in terms of that credible profession of faith. 
it's the, the Presbyterian view alone that I would argue captures the biblical balance between the wheat and the tares, between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, between the visible church as a, as a visibly gathered church and the invisible church, which is an elect remnant. That's the balanced view, and I just think it's interesting that those that refuse to make that distinction are all over the map, and we don't think of them as, as on the same page. But in many ways, the Reformed Baptist, the Federal Vision, the Roman Catholic view, they're all trying to merge it all into one. And so much more could be said in the different ways that they do that. But listen to Jordan's conclusion. He asked the question concerning the visible and invisible church. Quote, my conclusion is that nowhere does the Bible distinguish between those who are truly regenerate and those who are mere professors. The Bible does not teach that God gives some baptized persons true full grace and others only partial grace. What God gives is himself and there is nothing more that he can give. Nor does the Bible teach that those who fall away were never really in the kingdom of God, end quote. Now, Federal visionists claim to be Calvinists. They claim to believe in the doctrines of grace. You know, guys like James White interview Doug Wilson and pat him on the back for all these things. And yet, listen to what he's saying here. It almost sounds like Charles Finney, the, the great heretical, well, not great, but, uh, you know, the significant heretic of the 19th century who went out and proclaimed, God votes for you, the devil votes against you, you cast the deciding vote. Uh, This is this heretical Pelagian revivalism uh, that Jordan seems to be suggesting here. God gives every baptized person himself. There's nothing more he can give. So it's up to you. God's voting for you with these covenant privileges. The devil's voting against you and... uh, Are you going to persevere and cast that deciding vote? Very dangerous teaching here. But he denies the distinction between the visible and invisible church. Now let's remind ourselves of where we get that distinction. Just a couple examples. Uh, Romans 9 verse 6 tells us that in terms of the old covenant people of God, that when God made a promise to Israel, but only the elect remnant was actually saved, Romans 9, verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not as though God's unfaithful in his promise because only an elect remnant within Israel, within the visible professing covenant community, was saved. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. And so you've got Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. There's a distinction between being of Israel outwardly, being part of the professing visible church or covenant community, versus being among the elect remnant. You see something similar in Romans 11.5. He's addressing the same issue. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So among the old covenant people of God, among the Jews, there's an elect remnant that believes in Christ. He goes on to compare this to an olive tree. And those that do not profess their faith in Christ are cut off the covenant community, cut off the olive tree, and they can be grafted back in. 
but the, the olive tree is the visible covenant community. And you can be cut off of that. And you can be regrafted into that. We know that the elect, eternal election, is not like that. The olive tree is not the invisible church. It's not God's election unto eternal life for his people because nobody can be cut off, as we'll see in a moment. But, but concerning that visible church, that olive tree of public profession of faith and covenant inclusion, you can see in chapter 11, verse 20, he says to the New Testament church in Rome, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in also. So this is speaking of the visible covenant community which is determined by this outward profession of faith and inclusion in in the people of God. Now, this is a distinction that Jesus makes in Matthew 13 in his parable, in multiple parables. So the parable of the sower, there's the seed that falls into stony ground. Verse 5, some seed fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And the explanation of that in verse 20, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, Uh, When tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So you have the good soil that embraces it with joy, produces fruit, but you also have the stony ground soil, which makes that profession of faith and receives it with joy, but does not have the root of regeneration in his or her heart. And so some in, in the field are truly converted, others are shown to not be such. Then later in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, where the enemy sows these uh, seeds of tares or weeds that look very much like wheat. And I think we addressed this in the past. I want to clarify it again. When Jesus says, don't, don't uproot the tares until the harvest, he's specifically dealing with visible church members who appear to be credibly professing the faith. The tear is not the only kind of weed. If there's a weed that doesn't look anything like wheat, it needs to be booted out. It needs to be uprooted, rather. So excommunication is for weeds that appear in the field that don't look anything like wheat. There's no question that, that the person has crossed a line and does not have a credible profession of faith any longer. And so they're removed, they're uprooted. But there are, in many cases, tares, people that are unconverted, but they really look like they're saved. And in those cases where there's no clear basis for church discipline, no clear scandal, 
the church should not be going around trying to determine who's elect and regenerate and who's not and speculating beyond just the clear outward fruit that is visible. So with that said, Jesus says that the kingdom is like a field of wheat and tares. And you can read that parable. And at the the end of it, he says at the final judgment, there will be many wicked people gathered out of his kingdom. So in his kingdom, there are wheat, there are tares. There are believers and unbelievers, wise and foolish virgins. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, urges the Corinthians to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. And more could be said. There are so many other passages. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and following, where Paul says the foundation of God stands secure, that the Lord knows those who are His, and that everyone who names the name of Christ ought to depart from iniquity. So there's, there's this knowledge that God has of His elect, but then there's the, the professing church that has the duty to depart from iniquity, And Paul goes on there to say that in the house of God, verse 20 of 2 Timothy 2, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. That's language of election there and reprobation. So in the church, there are wheat and tares, those set for honor and dishonor. Okay, so Jordan is rejecting that. Now, going to our fourth statement here. According to Jordan, all baptized church members, including those who ultimately go to heaven and those who go to hell, are equally elected, regenerated, and justified, such that those who later fail to persevere actually lose their election, they lose their regeneration, they lose their justification. This is a flat-out denial of the perseverance of the saints. Jordan, quote, The question before us, however, is whether God gives some people more at the starting line than he gives others, so that only those who receive the more persevere to the end, or whether God gives the same thing himself to all, but continues to wrestle to the end only with some, so that some fall away while others persevere, end quote. So he's saying, is the reason that some church members ultimately make it to heaven and others don't, is the reason that the ones that made it to heaven had true saving grace and the ones who didn't persevere didn't have that? Is there something different that God gives to the one versus the other? And he's saying, no, they received the same thing. So the the final outcome is not the result of the grace that God gave to one and not the other. Listen again, he says, quote, The thesis of this paper is that all who are in Christ are in exactly the same position as regards the grace or favor and gifts of God with no distinction. By the way, when he says in Christ, he means church members here. With no distinction save that some continue in that position while others depart from it. Those passages that traditionally are held to teach that apostates were never really in Christ all along have been misinterpreted. And there are, in fact, no such passages in the Bible. Or to put it more bluntly, my thesis is that there is no such thing as regeneration in the sense in which Reformed theology since Dort has spoken of it. The Bible says nothing about a permanent change in the hearts of those elected to heaven. End quote. Another one. 
quote, to repeat the thesis, all who are in Christ are in exactly the same position as regards the grace or favor and gifts of God. Uh, actually, that's from the, the quote above that, so I'll just leave that alone. So, federal visionists are often accused of being difficult to understand, using cryptic, ambiguous language. The nice thing about Jordan is he just tells you what's on his mind. I mean, he's just flat out, I'm denying the reform doctrine of personal regeneration, point blank. Now, is it the case that the people who persevere receive exactly the same thing in terms of, you know, that they receive exactly the same thing as the people that don't? That is not the case. Hebrews 6 says this. Hebrews 6, verse 4. Let me just read these verses. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now, up to this point, he's describing common privileges that all church members have, whether regenerate or unregenerate, whether elect or reprobate. Uh, They all have opportunities to receive enlightenment from the Word of God. They, they learn biblical doctrine. Uh, they, they see the, 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 uh, the light of God's truth, at least intellectually. They taste of the heavenly gift and partake of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the life of the body of Christ. We don't have time to get into all the details, but um, even Saul was among the prophets. Unconverted people can experience something of the ministry of the Spirit. They can taste these things taste of the good word of God and of the the powers of the age to come and yet fall away. Notice those who bear herbs that are useful receive the same rain as those that bear thorns and briars. So it is true that both regenerate and unregenerate in the church receive the same outward privileges, the same ordinances, the same means of grace that are appointed for our spiritual well-being. So in terms of those things, yes, we would agree. But notice, beginning in verse 9, the apostle asserts that there is something that only the saved people have and that the people that fall away do not have it. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation. Notice the people described in the previous verses, they have all of these outward advantages and blessings and the taste of this and the taste of that, and yet... They don't have salvation. The things that accompany salvation, this unique gift of saving grace that God gives to His elect, they don't have that. Things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So you've professed Christ, you've lived it out, there's fruit and evidence that you have true saving grace not just the, the, the taste and the experience of these outward ordinances and privileges. So it is unique to those who are saved. And notice he says, 
Verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So their assurance is not just at the end when they get to judgment day and they realize, oh, thankfully I get to go to heaven because I persevered, but they're able to have full assurance of hope now until the end. From now until the end, they're able to labor diligently, see the fruit of grace in their lives, which distinguishes them as those who have saving grace as opposed to those who have counterfeit grace or whatever, those who are hypocrites. They can see evidence that they have something different, something that bespeaks salvation. They can have assurance, full assurance. And it says that full assurance does what? That you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So it's full assurance that I'm saved now, I'm regenerate now, that enables me to be diligent to the end and persevere and inherit the promises at the last day. So, but he's denying that. Fifthly, according to Jordan, all baptized church members are redeemed by Christ's atoning death. Some permanently that is, those who persevere, and others temporarily, that is, those who fall away. Quote, God is free to apply the full and special benefit of the atonement to some people temporarily and to others permanently. The special benefits of the atonement are limited in this world to those elected in the church and to those who believe but have not yet been baptized. And they are limited in the world to come to those elected to heaven. So, so you're elected to the church, and those are the references from Paul's epistles. But you could also be elected to heaven. We're not sure where in the Bible he identifies that ever being referenced, but uh, apparently some who are elect in the church are elected to heaven. But, but we're told that the death of Christ, the atoning death of Christ, applies to some people temporarily and others permanently. He goes on, quote, the special limited benefits of the atonement are for those who are in Christ. Those who leave the vine, who forsake the olive tree, cease to be in Christ and cease to receive the special benefits of the atonement, end quote. So what it's saying is that he who began a good work in you uh, may not finish it and complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus saved you to the uttermost when you came to God through him and he ever lives to intercede for you, but for some of the people he's interceding for, it's temporary, and they're not saved for the, to the uttermost. Some people he begins a work and applies the atonement to them, but doesn't complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But this flatly contradicts the message of the New Testament. John six thirty nine and 40. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So everyone who sees and believes is raised up by Christ in glory at the last day. And they have, from the moment they believe, everlasting life, unending life, not temporary life with a temporary application of the atonement of Christ, but a permanent, eternal life. Everyone who believes in the true, saving, regenerate way perseveres to the end. Jesus makes this point in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, according to Jordan, you've got some sheep that persevere, others who don't. You've got some sheep that temporarily receive the death of Christ and its benefits, others who receive it permanently. But Jesus doesn't make that distinction. He says he's given his life for the sheep. And listen to what he says about the sheep in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So everyone who follows Christ from the outset of their pilgrimage of discipleship, those who have truly looked to him with saving faith are his sheep, and he knows them. But he says in Matthew 7, 23, of those who said, Lord, Lord, but didn't show the fruit. I never knew you. But here he says he knows his sheep, but there are many who profess his name that he never knew. You see the distinction. And he says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So Jesus is saying everyone who is born again Everyone who is in Christ in a saving way, with saving, justifying faith, will persevere to the end. No one can snatch them away. They will be raised up in glory at the last day, and they, they shall never perish. Now, this is the last section here, and then we'll be done. And we'll take up the next time. But th- this is where the rubber meets the road. According to Jordan, the Holy Spirit mysteriously causes some, but not all, regenerate persons to persevere, such that their present condition is no sure indication of their future destiny, thereby precluding the possibility of gaining personal assurance of salvation by way of self-examination. What are we saying here? According to Jordan, the reason some persevere and others don't is just this mysterious operation of the Spirit. Everybody who's baptized is regenerate in this sort of covenantal, visible church way. They're united to Christ. They're justified in all these things. Uh, They may or may not persevere. So what's the difference for those that do persevere? Well, there's just this mysterious work of the Spirit that causes some, but not all, of these regenerate people to persevere. And, And by saying that, and by saying that there's nothing unique and distinguishing in the life of someone who perseveres, right? There's nothing in my life today that I can look to to say, all right, I can know that I'm going to persevere because I see the marks of a persevering saint in me today. I see that I'm regenerate today and I know every regenerate person will persevere. So when I see this work in my life now, I can conclude that I have eternal security. I have assurance of salvation. I will be a persevering saint because I'm a true saint now. And I can distinguish what a true saint is from a false convert now. And I can identify it in myself now. That's the biblical approach. But according to Jordan, there's nothing different in the persevering saint versus the non-persevering saint. God's given you everything he can give you, and he's given it to you equally. And so the only difference between the two is whether the Holy Spirit in the future adds this mysterious fairy dust to your life and you persevere or you don't. But there's no way to judge from your present condition concerning your future destiny. And so, as we mentioned in the past, Shepherd and the Federal Visionists are allergic to self-examination. And here, according to Jordan, self-examination is a waste of time. 
Because there's nothing you're going to identify in yourself that's going to prove that you're different and you will persevere. Nothing. There's no way to know. I mean, it really uh, smacks of Roman Catholicism that says apart from some special revelation, you can't know that you're going to persevere to the end. You'll know when you get there. So listen to these quotes. Quote, the traditional Reformed doctrine is, is problematic at the very least in that it locates perseverance not in the ongoing and mysterious wrestling of the Spirit, but in a change in the being of those elected to heaven. End quote. So it's not that you've been changed and transformed by regeneration and now you know God's begun the work so He's going to complete it. Instead, it's just this sort of ongoing mysterious wrestling of the Spirit that since it's mysterious, there's no way for you to know it. So it doesn't give you assurance. Again, quote, Hence my position. Everyone who is baptized has been given the same thing. No one has been given a permanently changed, regenerated heart. Everyone alike has been drawn into personal fellowship with God and has been placed in union with Christ. These gifts and promises are truly given to all. Perseverance is a matter of the Spirit's mysterious wrestling work and not a matter of whether a person has a permanently changed heart or not. End quote. I'll read another one. Quote, The gift is God Himself, union with Christ and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. God really and truly gives Himself to all those baptized and to those who are converted but not yet baptized by anticipation. God objectively declares such people justified, that is forgiven, sanctified, counted as holy, and glorified, adopted as sons. What I am disputing is the notion that a guarantee of perseverance is an aspect of this gift. You can be regenerated, justified, sanctified, glorified according to him, and yet you're not guaranteed perseverance. He goes on, quote, I am disputing the notion that those who don't persevere were never really given the gift. Hence, my thesis as qualified is that God gives exactly the same thing himself to all baptized persons, but that the Spirit orders the lives of various such persons differently. How are you going to know whether the mysterious work of the Spirit is going to order your life to heaven or hell? How are you going to know that? Let me just read these last couple quotes. Here we go, Jordan. To amplify, the gift to the church is God himself, the triune God. In the Godhead, the Father is giving the gift of a bride to his Son. This is election. And the Son is giving the gift of a people to his Father. It is the Spirit who is proceeding from the Father and from the Son to bring these gifts. To be baptized is to be woven into this process, to be incorporated into the bride slash people but not everyone woven into this process. Not everyone placed in Christ is destined to persevere to the end. The Spirit's work is mysterious. The Spirit wrestles to bring the bride to the Son and the people to the Father. He wrestles in history and over the course of time throughout the biographies of individuals and the histories of cultures. The Spirit will not always strive with sinners. He can be grieved and quenched. He can forsake Saul not until the gifts are finally given to the Son and the Father at the end will the gifts be fully prepared. Not all those who start out as part of these gifts will be part of them at the end. So you can be the bride of Christ that, you know, the, the people of God that God eternally gave to His Son 
and still fall away, just like King Saul. Quote, Of course, if the Bible actually teaches that God makes a permanent change in the hearts of some people, those elected to heaven, then it is still God's business and not ours. We must still live by what is given to us, the promises, and not to inspect our hearts to see that they are truly regenerate or not. End quote. Now, what are the promises? What are the promises that he's holding forth? What promises does James Jordan think that we've been given? We haven't been given a promise of perseverance. We haven't been given a promise of unlosable eternal life. We've been given everything that we could be given and still fall away. And he says it's really not even our business at all to examine, to to, to determine whether we're truly saved or not because all things being equal, we've received what everybody else has. And the only way to know if we're going to persevere is to be able to predict whether the Spirit is going to mysteriously wrestle in our life in the future. And here, here is the last quote, and this is where it comes down to it. Quote, People don't know because they can't know whether these promises apply to them or not. End quote. So forget about 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. Forget about 1 John 5.13, he writes these things that, that you may know that you have eternal life. Forget about the testimony of the Spirit, Romans 8.16. Forget about 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to know that you're in the faith. You can't know. And there's no way to anticipate whether God has eternally decreed to give you that mysterious wrestling of the Spirit to perseverance or not. William Cunningham famously said that the most deadly and destructive doctrine of Rome was its denial of assurance of salvation to its members in saying that apart from some extraordinary special revelation, you cannot know if you will persevere to the end. This is, at the very least, dangerous territory for James Jordan. We're going to pick this up later, next time, and look at some more of these teachings, but this is the guy that the Federal Vision, Doug Wilson, these guys, this is, this is the guy they say is going to teach you how to read the Bible. But, my friends, if we're going to persevere to the end, let me just remind you, uh, Hebrews six eleven. we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish. The way to persevere is to find assurance. And the way to increase your assurance, assurance is to persevere. And these two things work together like the two oars of a boat. And James Jordan wants to take one of those oars out of your hand so that you're just going to spin around in a circle. No wonder Federal Vision doesn't like self-examination. If you take out assurance as even a possibility, who would want to examine yourself? Maybe that's why they don't like it, because they're, they, they've tried it and they're spinning around in a circle. But the Bible gives us assurance and perseverance so that we can row our way forward in the Christian life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your promises, which promise us not merely membership in the church, uh, which would be a, a very weak and beggarly promise in this life, but you have promised us in Christ uh, a life that is incorruptible, eternal life, such that when we have looked to Jesus and believed upon him, he saves us to the uttermost. 
such that He ever lives to intercede for us and that He completes the work that He began when we first believed. Give us that assurance that we might persevere in the truth. We pray in His name. Amen.